church. It's good to be back home. You know that? It's fun to go away. Fun to uh, go see the mouse and all that down in Florida. But, uh, but also really good to be home and sleep in your own bed and watch your grass turn brown outside. And, uh, and more important than all of that, uh, to be with you, to be with our family, uh, our, our brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus and whom we love and who love us. Um, it's a great thing. Uh, I feel still a little bit, I've been back for a week, but I still feel a little bit out of, out of the loop on everything. I'm still trying to kind of catch up with everybody, find out what's going on everybody's life, but we need to do um, uh, something really important this morning, which is to welcome some new members. So, uh, Nate and Courtney, if you guys want to come on up. Uh, this is Nate and Courtney Clear, and uh, they've got little Isabella and that they're bringing with them. Luke is down there. Faith is, I think, out with Children's Church, but anyway, if you guys just step over here. Um, becoming a member of Chillicothe Bible Church uh, is something that's fairly important uh, in the life of our church. Uh, what we're doing is saying in a public way, these are people that we believe, uh, based on their profession of faith in Jesus Christ and based on the way we see them living their lives, have a credible testimony of conversion, that these are people who actually authentically do know Jesus, and we are very happy to commend them to the world as part of our public witness of what it means to live as a Christian out in the world uh, that we live in. And so um, along with that, they have the right to vote on uh, matters important to the church. They also have uh, responsibilities to serve and to give and to uh, participate in the life of the church, to reach out into the community with the gospel, um, and they are held accountable. Uh, if you're not a member, there's um, often very little we can do to hold you accountable to live out your faith, um, but if you are a member then um, and you start to stray, you can be held accountable to uh, walking with Jesus. Uh, as a member of the church. And so um, so with all that as background, uh, you guys step to the mic where you're right up close. Go ahead, Courtney. We want to hear your voice. All right. Uh, some questions for you. First, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And do you desire, above all else, to live for Him? If so, signify by saying, I do. I do. I do. Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in its confession of faith and in obedience to its membership covenant? If so, signify by saying, I do. I do. I do. Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your gifts and talents in its ministry, and the giving of your means as God prospers you, if so, signify by saying, I do. I do. I do. Then uh, I have a charge for you from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold 
of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now I want to pray for you all. Pray for your whole family, even though not all of them are up here with us. But let me pray for you. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, I have known Nate and Courtney now for a good bit and uh, know them well enough to know that they love you and want to live their lives for you. And Father, uh, I love them. Many of us here love them as well. And so, Father, we offer them up to you uh, and to the world watching as examples of what it means to make an authentic profession of faith and to live it out. Uh, Father, we pray your blessing on them. We pray for fruitfulness for them uh, in their lives and ministries. Uh, we pray for fruitfulness as they reach out with the gospel and as they make disciples. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, pour out your Holy Spirit on them in a way that that uh, causes them to continue to grow and be transformed and to look more and more and more like Jesus as they live their life together. Uh, Father, knit them together as husband and wife. Help them to be godly parents to Faith and Isabella and Luke and to the little one on the way. And Father, um, help them to, uh, to shine like lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, welcome, guys. And if you would like to greet Nate and Courtney, we'll, uh, we'll have them join me in the back uh, at the end of the service. And uh, we can all hug on them and cheer for them and uh, welcome them officially. Uh, now, this morning, we're going to um, be back in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 15. Um, I'm going to wrap up chapter 15, get in a little bit into 16 here this morning. Uh, so if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 15, beginning verse 18. Uh, and then uh, as you make your way there, let me tell you quickly what this passage is about, which is the fact that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, now that may not be a designation that applies to everybody in this room, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to tell you that as a follower of Jesus, you have received immediate membership in the counterculture. All right? You may not know that, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called wherever you are, and by the way, this has always been true that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you are going to be swimming upstream from the dominant cultural uh, pressure and direction of your day. Even in places where the culture is Christianized, to live an authentic Christian life is to still be swimming upstream of the dominant force of your culture. And so, uh, those of you who remember the radical counterculture of the 1960s and 70s, some of you are old enough to have lived through it, uh, although you don't remember it. Um, and um, some of you did live through it and remember what it was like. And what you, what you know, if you know anything about that time in our nation's history, is that the folks who were the radicals then are the folks who are the man today. They are the establishment. 
They have become the culture. They have, be, they have attained to the spots of political and academic and, uh, and social cultural power in our world today. And what that means for us as American Christians, more so now than perhaps at any other time in our history, because prior to now we had a Christianized culture, not Christian. We were never a Christian country, by the way. I don't know if that comes as news to you or not. But uh, countries cannot be Christian. People are Christian. Okay? Countries can reflect to a greater or lesser extent the values of the Christians who live in them. But countries are not Christian. Not in the way that a country can be, for example, Islamic or Buddhist or communist or some other ideology. People are Christians. And if you are a Christian in America today, you are going to be swimming upstream against the flow of your culture. It is going to tell you that things that you hold dear and deep and true and that you seek to live your life by are hateful and false and bigoted and worse. If you didn't know that, Welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. <laughs> okay, uh, if it's your first day today, we're glad you're here. <laughs> but, um, but here is, that is the reality that we live in. And there are all kinds of issues, especially in our culture today, relating to sexuality and marriage and family, but also things like whether or not objective truth actually is a thing that exists. Uh, whether morality is based on transcendent truth or, or personal opinion and cultural norms, whether or not Jesus is the only way into a right relationship with God, these are all things that are going to be contested in our culture if you are a Christian. And sometimes you might wonder what happened as you look around. But here's the thing that we need to hear out of the text today as we look at what Jesus has to say about these things is that this is normal. That being a Christian, swimming upstream of the dominant cultural ideas and forces of your day is normal for Christians. That is not an abnormal, strange situation. That is the way that God calls Christians to live, is in a way that is counter-cultural. Counter the things that merely human beings come up with. After all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've heard what Jesus said, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many of y'all learned that in school? That that's that. I mean, that's completely in my public high school what they taught us all. Uh, be sure you love everyone in your class. Be sure that you pray for all the people that bully you. Right? That's what I heard from my teacher. Isn't it what you heard from yours? Yeah. No, that didn't show up in the curriculum, right? Why? Because the world values totally different things. The world values intelligence and success and achievement and being in a position to bully other people. But it does not, it does not love humility and love and prayer for those who are your enemies. It does not love and affirm those things. 
And this is normal. So we want to pray and we want to look at the scriptures together. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us as we study your word and we study what Jesus had to say about being part of a completely radically countercultural movement of your people in a sinful world. That you would help us to be courageous, not to be nasty, not to be obnoxious, but to be courageous and to stand for what is true that we might shine like lights and that even if we are persecuted to not persecute or revile in turn, but to bless. And Father, we pray that we might be Jesus' people and be marked out as His people, that people might take note that we have been with Him in the midst of a lost and dying world. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's what Jesus says, beginning verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would, will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Amen. Now, this is not the text I wanted to preach today. In fact, I, I, if I'd had better planning, I would have gotten to preach about abide in Christ and been on vacation for, for the world is going to hate you as a Christian and let Josh do that one, right? It's my senior pastor prerogative to pass all the passages I don't want to preach on to someone else, right? But here's what Jesus is saying, that the world hates him and it's going to hate you too because it hates him. Focus with me on, for a minute on two little words in verse 18. The first one is the word if. Now, in English, we only, we only use the word if in really one way. Uh, that is as a conditional statement if, that this describing something that might happen. But in Greek, the Greek, Greek is the language that underlies our English translation. There are three different ways to use the word if, and this one is written in a grammatical way that indicates that this is an event that is likely to happen. In other words, if, and it's probably going to. If the world hates you, and by the way, it probably will, is what Jesus is saying. It's not just a possibility, it's a virtual certainty. So that's a word you need to understand what that means. He's not saying, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. They probably will. 
And he's talking, and also the word world. That is John's word, not for the globe, but for the, the whole interlocking social, cultural system that is the natural result of unbelievers living together like unbelievers. Because non-Christians, I know this is not a newsflash, right? But if it is, let me give it to you. Unbelievers naturally live like unbelievers. Right? I know that's deep. Right? But they do. They naturally live like unbelievers. And when you get big masses of them living like unbelievers together, you get this thing that John calls the world. That some of the problems that we encounter as Christians living in the world are not just problems relating to individual unbelievers, but they are systemic. They are things that that characterize a whole culture and a whole way of life in rebellion against God. And John calls that the world. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. If the dominant social, political, economic, cultural stream is running against you. Do not be surprised if that happens. And Jesus' point is this in in these verses, that if you are His follower, it's likely, it's likely that some members of the world are going to hate you. And then He proceeds to give us several reasons why. That first, according to verse 18, that the world already hated Him. And we're His followers, so it will hate us because we're connected to Him. Does that mean, by the way, when it says the world will hate you, that every single unbeliever you know will despise you? No. What it means is that that the whole pattern of culture and economics and politics and so forth will in many cases be looking on you as an outsider and as someone who deserves to be an outsider. That it will be running against you. That you will be walking uphill in the non-Christian world. Remember those stories we told our kids about walking to school, right? There's always uphill both directions and chest deep snow year round, right? (laughs) Six miles. The distance got longer as we got older, right? Um, That is what Jesus is telling us, is that if you are a Christian in a non-Christian world, you're going to be walking uphill both directions and chest deep snow a lot of the time. Not every single unbeliever will hate you, but many people will. And that is normal. That's to be expected. Second, verse 19, we, will read, we read that the world will hate us because we aren't part of it anymore. Look at this part. Jesus, it's a, Jesus says that He chose us out of the world to be His people. We are recipients of His saving grace. Amen? And because we, once we receive that saving gift, we are not part of the world anymore. Our nature has changed and we 
are different people. We have switched teams, if you will. Right? Uh, you know, in my, in my family, you can be anything you want except a Patriots fan. Right? <laughs> you cannot root for Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Right? You cannot do that. Right? <laughs> um, he is a great coach, and he didn't need to cheat. Right? And, and since he did, we hate him at my house. Right? <laughs> but at least during football season. All right? We root for the Colts or the Bears or whoever plays them. Right? And, um, and it is much the same way when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you have switched allegiance. And you have said that there is some, some person who is sovereign over your life and there are certain things, therefore, that you are going to stop doing and certain things that you're going to start doing that are going to be offensive to the people on whose team you used to belong. They're going to hate you because you have become a different person. Uh, verse 20 gives us a third reason. Because a servant isn't greater than his master. Whatever the master endures, we have to endure as well. If some people persecuted Jesus, and they did. And some people rejected His Word, and they did. Then it follows they will also persecute Jesus' servants and reject their words too. Amen? Makes perfect sense. Whatever Jesus suffers, we're going to suffer. Because a servant is not greater than his master. Verse 21, he gives us a fourth reason why the world will hate us and persecute us on Jesus' account. It's because they do not know the Father who sent him. Look at the text. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They might claim to know God. Jesus says, if they persecute the people of God, it's because they do not know God. They don't really know God. Uh, in the context, I think Jesus is making it clear also, it's not that they don't know that God exists, but that they reject him and hate him, and they do so because they don't possess a real relationship with God, and they don't know him in any kind of personal way. Now, look at verses 22 to 24 here in the text. What Jesus is saying here is that he came to help them to know the Father and to come into that personal relationship with God that they are missing. That's why he showed up. Not knowing who God is and not being in a relationship with him is a problem that Jesus came to solve for them. But they rejected and hated Jesus. And to do that, since Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to the world, is to hate the Father also. And the terrible and tragic thing is this. This is what Jesus highlights here. That if Jesus had never come, if Jesus had never done his mighty works or given his powerful teaching, they wouldn't be as guilty as they are. 
right? Like, just like if you're a parent and you don't tell your kid not to do something and they do it, well, you might tell them, hey, uh, that wasn't such a hot idea. Don't do that next time, right? But if, on the other hand, you've came to them and you've told them, look, don't do this. And then in full knowledge of your instruction later, you catch them doing it, the consequences are more severe. Amen? Why? Because now you have been told. You were not ignorant. You received explicit instruction. And so we, you have that interrogation with your kid, right? Did I tell you not to do this? And they go, uh-huh, <laughs> right? And you go, did you do it? Uh-huh, why? I don't know. You know, <laughs> and they kind of look at you, right? And so then you have to instruct them and correct them and discipline them and so forth to help them to understand that when I tell you not to do this, it means don't do it, Right? And because they're more accountable after you've told them than if you'd never told them. And Jesus is making the same point. He says, if I hadn't come and given all these miracles and taught for three and a half years about all these things and about how to know God and about who I am and what I came to do, the fact that they have rejected me would be less of a big deal than it is now. Because now what it is, is culpable rejection. It is culpable rejection and rebellion against God who has done everything possible to reveal Himself to them in the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's very much like whenever you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they ask you, well, what about the heathen over in Africa somewhere who have never heard this message? I have kind of a smart aleck answer that I give to that. And I say, well, you know, I can answer that question two ways. I can tell you what the Bible says about those folks or I can tell you something else. And let me tell you the something else first. And that is that God has a, an answer for those people in His Word, and I can show it to you. But you are not among them. Because you have heard. And you are therefore more accountable than they. Amen? You are accountable because you have heard and you know what you are rejecting. You can't claim ignorance. Now these folks are guilty of active rebellion against God the Father and hatred for both Jesus and the Father. Now look at verse 25. Uh, here Jesus is quoting Psalm 69 verse 4 which says, They hated me without a cause. According to Jesus, all this rebellion and rejection is happening in fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, this did not sneak up on Jesus. It did not sneak up on God that this was going to be the response of part of the people in Jesus' day. That this is happening in fulfillment of Scripture. And notice, by the way, it's also this. It is without a reason. It isn't because Jesus has been so objectionable. 
It isn't because Jesus is so hard to like. In fact, if you read your Bible, Jesus is the most fascinating, appealing, uh, amazing character in it. Amen? I mean, if you read through the Old Testament in a sitting, especially the history sections of Scripture from Genesis to the end of, um, of Esther, I'll tell you what you don't get. You don't get the Sunday school version that sometimes gets told to people that makes it seem like uh, all these people were just so wonderful and so God used them. Right? You get the, the feeling as you read it that what a bunch of misfits, ne'er-do-wells, and evildoers. <laughs> right? And God used these people in spite of that? Yes. And then you come to Jesus. And you go, I don't know who this man is, but he is amazing. And the more you read, the more you become convinced he's more than just a man. That he is, in fact, who he claims to be, the son of the living God in the flesh, come to save the world. And so it isn't because Jesus has been objectionable. It is because they have no good reason. All these other things have been, are excuses that people give, but the, the bottom line is there is no good reason to hate Jesus. Here's the point of verses 18 to 25. The world will hate you because it hates Jesus. Bottom line. The world is going to hate you because it hates Jesus. To be connected to Jesus is to have some of the world's hatred for him splash over onto you. Now, I'm not going to stop there because there's more. Here's the point of verses 15, 26 down to the first part of verse 4. With the Spirit, proclaim Jesus and persevere. With the Spirit, proclaim Jesus and persevere. Look at the text. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If you look at verse 26, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit, that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth that comes from the Father, and that the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. Now, hang with me here. This is important. This is about to get very deep very fast. If the Spirit is sent by Jesus and comes from the Father, that tells us a couple important things. First, if the Spirit comes from the Father and is properly referred to as He is here as He, then He is a person of God and therefore is God. Second, if Jesus can send the Spirit to His followers... That means Jesus has authority over the Spirit, which means that Jesus is himself also God. 
because he is capable of sending another person of God. And third, since the Spirit is God and comes from God and is sent by God, then something like the doctrine of the Trinity has to be true. It's the only logical conclusion. And finally, since the Spirit of God is God, then He is properly described as the Spirit of truth, because all truth comes from God. And His testimony about Jesus, therefore, being God must also be true. Now that's very deep theology, I know. But it's important because understanding that makes it very clear that Jesus is not blaspheming when He claims to be God. He's not just offering His own testimony. He's offering the Father's testimony and the Spirit's testimony and the testimony of His own followers that He is in fact who He claims to be, that He is God. And it also gives us the basis for understanding how it is that Jesus can be fully God and sent from the Father to become the incarnate uh, Son of God in the person of Jesus, how He can die for sin and be raised from the dead and then later send the Spirit to indwell His followers. This verse is very important to all of that. And verse 27 describes how, Jesus, how the Spirit will testify about Jesus. It will be, by the way, through those to whom Jesus is sending the Spirit. That is the mission. To bear witness about Jesus, who He is and what He has done to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And in the immediate context, Jesus is commissioning His disciples who are with Him. By the way, the Great Commission is at the end of the book of Matthew, but Jesus commissions the, His followers with the gospel at repeated points all the way through His ministry with them. He sends them out with the message about Jesus because it's not just something that you wait for at the end as if it's graduation. This is something that is integrated into the discipleship process all the way along the way. Why? Because it is the main thing that Jesus is about about making disciples who make disciples. And if we're going to be Jesus' followers, we've got to be about what Jesus is about. Amen? And so I want to point this out and underline it because this is not the only time that Jesus commissions His followers to go out with the message about Him, but it is one of several where He says, this is what you're to do. You're to testify about Me by the Spirit. With the Spirit. The Spirit is coming, and when He comes, do what the Spirit has come to do, which is to testify about me, who I am, and what I've done. And by the way, it's not just for the disciples, it's for all who are disciples of Jesus. Now, look at the first three and a half verses of chapter 16. I know I'm running short on time, but I want to look at these with you. In these verses, Jesus underlines the reason why he is telling them all this. By the way, is this the most encouraging passage in Scripture or what? Right. Hey, by the way, if you follow Jesus, everyone will hate you and that's normal. <laughs> right? Have a good day. Um, that is not what we come to church hoping to hear. Why is Jesus telling them all this? Why is he telling this to us? Why is this included in the Scripture? Scripture. 
Jesus has said all these things so that his followers will know what's coming. And that knowing what's coming, that it will put steel in their spine and enable them to persevere. Enable them to persevere through it. You know, when World War I started, all these European powers that got together in what has to be one of the stupidest wars in human history. Seriously, okay. I mean, the war for Jenkins' ear is probably worse, but this one was galactically stupid as well. They all thought, well, it'll be easy. It'll be over in six months. And it wasn't until an entire generation of European men had been literally wiped out that the thing came to an end. And if they had known that going in, that this is going to be a lot harder than you think and millions of people are going to die, it probably would have forestalled a lot of the reactions that you got. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to come follow me, there's going to be a high price to pay. And if you're not down for that, you need to hurry up and grow into this because this is coming. If you knew, hey, I'm going into battle, you prepare for that differently than you prepare for, hey, I'm preparing for a lifetime of blessing and it'll all be one big picnic. Amen? And he is telling them, this is coming, guys. Storm is coming. And it's going to last you the rest of your life until you get to glory. And I want you to persevere. And don't be shy about proclaiming me. Do the mission. Carry out your mission until the end. And if you swim upstream, swim upstream. If you get persecuted, that's normal. If you get killed, welcome to the big leagues. This is the mission. Carry it out to the end. That's the reason. And he says, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. From the first days of the early church all the way down to the present day, Christians swim upstream all the way to the end. So, knowing that the world will hate us because it hates Jesus, what are we supposed to do? One thing Three essential parts. One thing. Rely on the Spirit. Jesus said He would send the Spirit, and He did. And the Spirit of God is essential. And you have to rely on Him in order to be able to do the next two parts of this. If you're trying to just kind of grit your teeth and live the Christian life on your own, on your own willpower, you are not going to, it's not going to work. It's not going to work can't do it one of my favorite stories when we used to read our kids books was the frog and toad story about cookies a toad makes a bunch of cookies and they're the most delicious cookies in the world and they can't stop eating them and so and so toad boxes them up puts them in a box or i think it's frog puts, puts them in a box and he's like i'll put them in a box then we won't see them and then we won't want to eat them right and then and then he says, well, 
Toad says, well, yeah, that would work, except we can open the box and eat some more. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tie up the box with string. So they do. He goes, but then we can just untie the string, open the box, and eat the cookies. Well, that's true. He said, well, what if I put the box up on top of the highest shelf in the house? Well, but then I can just get a ladder, get the box down, cut the string, open the box, and eat more cookies. And so Frog hits on a brilliant solution. He goes outside and he throws them out on the ground and calls the birds to eat the cookies. And Toad looks at him and he says, now we have no more cookies. Frog says, yes, but we have lots of willpower. And Toad says, yeah, you can have it all. I'm going home make a cake. <laughs> right? And the point is, is that your own willpower is not going to be sufficient to carry out the task that God has ahead of you, to persevere to the end and to swim upstream every day against a culture that is opposed to you and that hates everything you're about if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And relying on the Holy Spirit, then you do this. You proclaim Jesus not yourself, not your allegiance to a political party, not your insistence that if we could just pass some law that that would fix everything. By the way, word of encouragement, God published 613. Every single one of them was violated. Passing another law will not fix the human heart. So we proclaim Jesus. Because the gospel is the only truly transformative thing in all the world. Only Jesus fixes people. So with the Spirit, we proclaim Jesus. And we do it until the end. Until the end. We proclaim Jesus and we live knowing that it may cost us. And if it does, we pay it. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. I love the story that Jesus tells of the treasure hidden in the field. Because let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And he goes and he sells everything he has to buy that field. Jesus is the hidden treasure. And when you find Him, everything else in your life is worth giving up for Him, including your life. So with the Spirit, proclaim Jesus all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Till death or martyrdom, whichever comes first. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, one of our military units has a slogan that says, death before dishonor. Father, I embrace that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that I would rather die than bring dishonor to Christ and discredit His name. I would rather stand firm and be a rock in the middle of the stream 
that all of the waters of the culture break against and then float downstream like a dead fish. Father, I pray that you will, as we rely on your Holy Spirit, put steel in our spine and extra bone where it needs to be that we can stand in the midst of an evil day. Because, Father, the world does grow dark. It grows ever more sinful in its rebellion against you, and we increasingly, even among your people, feel the pressure to accommodate ourselves to it. Father, I pray we would not bend, that we would be people who would be full of grace, that our conversation would always be seasoned with salt, that we would be a savory presence in the world, but not be surprised when living like a Christian causes other people to hate us because they hated you. And they hated you without a good reason. We confess, Father, that if they hate us, sometimes they might have a good reason because we're not sinless. Father, help us to sin less that their hatred for us might have even less reason and that the gospel might shine therefore more clearly that we are redeemed people who live for Christ and that the, the flame of the gospel would grow and grow that it would consume the darkness and sin of our world that more and more people would come to know Jesus in a real way and be willing to join us in swimming against the tide uh, that, the, that many, many, many more people might be saved. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.